I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And once again, we're in for a great treat today. I'm extremely excited to uh, share the story uh, that I'm about to go through today and a real great story about resiliency and more importantly, living undeterred. And I think um, uh, hearing this story will make everyone feel like, you know what, if, if, if this person can get through what they went through, then I certainly can. So um, Honesty Liller is from Richmond, Virginia. She's the CEO of the McShin Foundation, which we're hoping we're hoping that uh, we can get your organization to be a state partner for us on our tour next. Uh, I say next summer, but it's in it's in two months. But mm-hmm. Honesty, thank you very much for being here, and I'm looking forward to uh, having our followers and listeners hear about your story. Thank you for having me. Yeah, totally. It's our stories have power, and hopefully, it'll help someone out there for sure. Thank you. I saw I saw a TV uh, show on you a uh, couple minute uh, blurb and it was I'm like wow okay 12 years old yeah you smoked pot at 12 years old uh, I wasn't smoking pot at 12 matter of fact I, this is what's amazing about people that know me because they know what happened to my son and my wife and they kind of assume that you know maybe I was into drugs as well I, I've never done drugs my entire life now I was a functional alcoholic since like seventh grade. Uh, and all the way up until I quit drinking in 2017, I drank six nights a week. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was a compulsive gambler too. So I had addiction issues. I just never really was familiar with the drug road. Um, now my son went down that road and you at 12 were doing what pot and crack cocaine at 16. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. When I was 12, my first drug was actually weed before alcohol. And then it was alcohol and LSD and shrooms for a few years. And then, yeah, I I did a little bit of cocaine and crack when I was about 15-ish. That didn't last too long because I found heroin, you know, shortly after that as well. So, yeah, I I have a 12-year-old son right now and a 20-year-old daughter. And Mm. I just couldn't see my son, you know, hitting a crack pipe or even a bong or anything right now, to be honest with you. Um, I'm, I was raised a little different for sure than, than my children are being raised in recovery as well. So, you know, it, it definitely uh, was a weird time, but also to be honest, it was fun when I was 12 before I found heroin, mm-hmm. my life was fun. I was going to concerts and shows and fish shows. And sometimes, most of the time, I didn't make it into the concert, just the parking lot where <laughs> the drugs were. Uh, right. But I really did, like, living the life that I, you know, led at a, such a young age. It just, sometimes when I tell people my story, they are, they're just like, how did you do that? Like, because they have kids, you know, that are 12, 13, 14, mm-hmm. and yeah, but it's my story. So now you're CEO mm-hmm. of the McShin Foundation. Mm-hmm. So let's start there, and then maybe we'll go back sure. a little bit. But I don't like to live too long in the past. Um, I certainly like to talk about your past as kind of a foundation mm-hmm. to talk about you know who you are today and what you've been through. It seems to me that many people in this um, mental health, substance abuse, addiction, uh, you know, industry, I guess we call it now, um, Mm -hmm. have personal stories. And you can see behind me, I have our map up of our tour. Mm -hmm. Right below it, I have a phrase. I'm not sure you can see that. I think the pictures are covering. It Mm -hmm. says, purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And that's my my mantra in my life. And everyone I meet like you, you're, you're passionate 
because something, your purpose was defined by something personal. Mm -hmm. And so your history with, you know, your addiction got you to where you're at. But okay, so now you're CEO of the McShin Foundation. Tell me about what the McShin Foundation does, kind of where you're located, how many facilities, and what, what type of person do you guys try to help each day? Sure. So the McShin Foundation is super cool because all of us here are in recovery. So all of my staff are in recovery. Most of them have lived in our housing. So what we are is a recovery community organization. We're the only accredited organization in the state of Virginia uh, through CAPRIS, which is through Faces and Voices of Recovery, which is a nationally known organization. But we have right now 13 recovery homes. We're about to have 14 because we are full to the brim. And since COVID, it's been pretty packed since COVID hit. And we have where I'm sitting right now is my office, but we have a recovery center. So we have a 15,000 square foot recovery center. We're open 365 days a year. Individuals can come in you know, off the streets if they needed to utilize our, our groups, our facility. But most of the people that come through here during the day live in our housing. And we have jail programs, which means we're in three local jails uh, five days a week, and we deliver peer-to-peer -peer recovery support services to the inmates in there. Just we're hope dealers. Hands down, the biggest thing is we're hope dealers. We have the lived mm -hmm. experience of addiction and recovery, and we're all just trying to you know, do this thing together and educate ourselves as well. And we have family programming and we have um, actually award winning. We, we need to get you on our podcast. Um, get in the Herd is our podcast that goes into 48 jails across the United States. So oh, wow. on the tablets uh, that the incarcerated have. And again, all of our followers and all the places that pot, you know, podcasts live. And, um, but that's really is we're hope dealers. We're in recovery. I mean, we have a ton of policies, procedures, HR, a ton of different professionalisms here as well. But the biggest part is that authenticity, you know, being there, doing that, you know, we keep it real. We keep it really real here at McShan. We don't sugarcoat too much um, unless we absolutely need to, but we all just kind of love each other. And the humans that we serve, you asked, um, is every, basically everyone. I mean, we, an individual can email, text, call, or show up here. And then Joyce is our intake coordinator and she kind of develops a package to what that individual needs. So some people need a driver's license, some people need food, some people need clothes. You know, some people just need a roof over their head depending on their situation. Um, but like I said, since we're full, we have 128 beds, I do believe now, and we're getting ready oh, wow. for the 14th house. And these are all separate houses too. So, hmm. um, so yeah, so we just try to individualize whatever that human needs when they come through our doors. Where are you seeing the biggest challenges with people in recovery right now? I mean, I think COVID's been a huge one. Social media is make, makes it difficult. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, ha I have to think that, unfortunately, the demand and the need for what you're doing, uh, I don't see it going down at all in the future. If anything, it's going to get, you know, I don't want to say worse, but it's going to get more uh, impactful to have organizations like yours you know, um, especially in regards to just overall mental health, uh, lack of mental health that we have in our country. Totally. I mean, COVID for sure. I mean, I've been doing this, gosh, almost 15 years I'll have in May if I make it. But, 
you know, I, you know, the COVID, the isolation, the no hugs, the, the mask, like everything like really went, everyone kind of just freaked out on March, 2020, like the world is going to end. What are we going to do? McShen never closed. We still took people every single day because addiction didn't stop because COVID started or nor has right. it stopped. Um, but yeah, that's the biggest thing I think is COVID and that isolation. But Virginia's opened up a lot, to be honest with you. But the other thing is social media. You know, it, it's it's hard. Um, the world is just different when I got into recovery. There wasn't as many services. There wasn't like all of this social media. But now there's like social media as far as like still that low self-esteem like i i -hmm. believe personally and professionally there's so much more to recovery than just stopping using drugs it is like that oh yeah healing and that inner love and you know with social media it's just hard because so many people are addicted to likes and and loves and who's gonna like my picture and why didn't they like you know and it's like so much added Mm -hmm. i believe stress on the humans that are trying to you know, just not use drugs anymore, you know? Um, but and as far as services, I mean, we do pretty good here in Richmond as far as like wraparound services. I mean, there's definitely lack of funding, even though there's a ton of funding coming um, through through the government and these opioid, you know, settlements. So hopefully mm-hmm. it'll, it'll get better. Um, but I mean, we're in the business of saving people and it's just getting, we're getting more houses and more houses, which is, I guess, good, but it's also, you kind of think on the other side, like, on, like we had three houses when I lived here. And again, that was almost 15 years ago and we're getting ready to open our 14th. So it's grown significantly throughout the years for sure. And the isolation and the no hugs and like, there's nothing like, you know, this is beautiful because COVID, the good thing, I've got to meet so many amazing humans oh, yeah. in the country, yep. but there's nothing like a hug. There's nothing like a hug yeah. to me, but yeah. So it's I saw something the other day, Honesty, that said that 60% of the people out there with alcohol problems increase their usage during uh, the COVID lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And the online sales of alcohol were mm-hmm. up like 200% year over year. So, you know, not only do we have these problems before all this, now it's, you know, and now you got the fentanyl issue and that has just changed the whole paradigm, you know, used to be the substance abusers, the addicts were the ones that were dying today. It's, it's the new paradigm, you know, the the people have never done drugs are dying the first time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we have a really tough haul ahead of us as a society to figure out ways to, you know, I don't want to say fight this like a forest fire with, you know, cups of water, but trying to change people's behavior before they become the addicts and the substance abusers. And in a way, it's kind of demoralizing to think that we keep building, we have to keep building more and more facilities to handle more and more people. And there really seems no end in sight. And for me, I think the answer is to maybe start looking at eight, nine, 10, 12 year old kids and really start there with trying to get, you know, um, get to them before they become addicts. So, I mean, when you guys are looking at your facility day to day, are, you know, and I don't know how much of this you can divulge, but are most of it just your normal alcoholics, substance use abusers, you know, or are these starting to get a little more hardcore? You're seeing people coming in with fentanyl overdoses and, you know, um, things like that. Oh yeah. We've had the overdoses for years. It's just been nationally for the 
past few years. Um, but yeah, I mean, our two number things are, are definitely opiates, uh, fentanyl, heroin, um, Oxycontin and alcohol are the two number, mm-hmm. um, two biggest things here at McShen. I mean, we've had, we have Narcan everywhere, all in our houses, you know, throughout right. the years, our house leaders have had a Narcan, tons of different people. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge here. Um, and then since COVID definitely more people are drinking more and like reaching out to me, like, you know, moms that are home with their children, you know, or, you know, people are getting laid off or, you know, so many different situations. People are like asking for my advice. Like, am I an alcoholic? And I don't really have the leeway to kind of say, Hey, yes, you're an alcoholic. I don't, I don't um, put labels on humans, but I do kind of talk it out with them to see like, okay, what is going on in your home, in your life? Are you losing, you know, things that are value, you know, just all kinds of things that come with addiction. Um, and normally they're like, yes, now my marriage is messed up. You know, my kids, you know, do whatever they, it just depends on the human that reaches out to me, but it is definitely huge here. And the opiate epidemic has been around for years. Um, if you ask me, but you know, people mm-hmm. were overdosing 10, 15 years ago, but now it's clearly gotten worse because of, you know, the Oxycontin and everything, you know, the past few, um, constantly we had a kit we have a little detox detox room it's just more of a comfortable room that they kind of lay in in the dark and have a recliner we feed them lots of sugar to kind of help them but we have a relationship with a asam doctor in the community that that will do a same day detox so we have we have linkage to mental health we have csacs we have therapists all of that we have linkage to nine times out of 10, it's the day that they come. It depends on the le- their last use, obviously, with the detox. Right. Um, but alcohol is booming um, right now. Yeah, I mean, you see commercials constantly that they deliver alcohol, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just easy access. You can go any store, basically, and there's alcohol. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely the past three years have gotten so worse and to piggyback on your thought about like the 12 13 year olds like i know you had interviewed ann moss rogers and i know she has a great curriculum to go into schools mm-hmm. and she is a board member on a friend of ours nonprofit to end the stigma which they're going to be focusing on it's a new nonprofit, so they're going to be focusing on the adolescents like how to get them so they don't have to come to mcshen and i think the yeah. biggest thing with that just me raising my two children my husband's in recovery as well but is this like we don't say like the Nancy Reagan era, no offense, but like, don't do drugs. Like that's just not how we parent. Can I control mm-hmm. my kids from never using drugs? No, I'm not in denial of that, but we keep it real and explain to them, like the humans that I'm surrounded with can sniff heroin one time, think it's heroin and it's fitting on, they die. And then they have, I don't know if you've seen these pill parties where they go to these parties oh, yeah. and they throw all these pills and I'm just like, as a parent, parenting is number one, the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. But yeah. it's like you're worried too, but it's also like you just keep it real with your children and have those conversations. And I think schools need to get a little bit better and I'll probably get notes for this, but just a little bit better of like being open-minded to get more services into the schools as far mm-hmm. as individuals with lived experience talking about, okay, yes, I'm a CEO and my life is awesome now. But when you read my book, like I went, my childhood was 
not good. And it was mm -hmm. drug infested and a multitude of trauma and all this stuff. Like, you know, we need, you know, younger folks, because we have an awesome, you know, younger staff here as well, you know, to get in there and talk to these because at think also with the social media, there's so much low self-esteem going on, you know, it's that's the suicide rates are gone up and the drug use and alcohol use is going up. I think it's more of like having positive affirmations and positive influences in the school system. Mm -hmm. That's not just sports, you know, I mean, my son yeah, is you know, a sports player, but you know, just yeah. some more um, opportunities for these children to have so they're not bored and just going to a party to be with, you know, their friends, you know, just some fun, but more of it. And, and I know that all comes down to funding, obviously. And, you know, I, I think about and I, I have these conversations, you know, every day now since I've been thrust into this uh, club that I never asked to be a member of and mm -hmm. I certainly can never leave. Uh, and it seems to me there's a lot of still um, naive parents that just still think that this can't happen to my son or daughter or my husband or my wife. And, you know, now, like I said, things have really shifted. And just a couple of days ago, um, a, a, a female college uh, soccer player for a power five school, you know, one of the hardest colleges to get in, uh, Stanford University, uh, just took her own life. Uh, two days ago, she was co-captain on the on the team, and she was actually had a saving uh, defensive play as a goalkeeper. Is that what it's called in in soccer? I don't know. Goaltender, maybe. I don't know. Ask me. I'm a I'm a golfer, so. <laughs> but anyway, she. Basketball. Yeah, she had she took she took her life, which was just shocking to people. And I I, I when I hear these stories, I inject myself into that story mm -hmm. as a parent, mm -hmm. and I think to myself, you know. I wonder, you know, if these parents were aware that this woman was having these issues and, and probably her friends weren't even aware. And you look at someone that's just so perfect from every lens you can look from, except they're not perfect in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, unfortunately, the act of suicide is so finite that that it's over and there's no there's no second chance. And that's why it's important in, in mental health is that we can find the red flags, we can identify these things. And so and I bring that story up just because of the fragility of people today, that they seem like the, the quickest and easiest way to get through problems is to either do drugs or to take their own life. And, and so meeting people like Ann, Ann Moss Rogers and even Steve Phillips, I had him on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's from the UK. His, um, his son Jordan took his life. It's like all these things come together. And Honestly, I think you'd probably certainly agree with this statement. Think of mental health as a wheel, and each spoke represents, you know, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, you know, uh, maybe sex abuse, trauma, you know, re re um, trying to survive from childhood trauma. All these spokes on the wheel all add up. And my biggest fear with, with industries that focus on one thing, like let's say you have an organization that just works with alcoholics mm -hmm. is it's like, it's like, and I say this every podcast, I'm trying to avoid saying it, but I, I do it cause too easy of a metaphor, but it's the whack-a-mole idea. It's like you, you fix one thing and then all these other moles pop up. And it's like, if we look at these issues of, as, as, you know, co-contributing factors to somebody's decline in their mental health, 
And it's like you need to, you need to really shake these people to the core and change many things about them and get them to see themselves from a different lens. Because um, that's my biggest fear in this mental health epidemic is that we're chasing things like fentanyl, but then we're just kind of neglecting some of the other issues that, that could be out there. And obviously fentanyl is a little different because you're dead immediately. You can't fix problems when somebody's dead. So um, I think the first thing is try to get fentanyl off the streets. But I just I wanted to know what your thoughts are kind of on how I stumbled through that, that, that paragra- paraphrase. But um, are you concerned at all that maybe sometimes we're just trying to fix too focused of an issue that, that we neglect some other things that are, uh, that end up resurfacing later and become big problems for people, unattended issues, I guess. Sure. And a lot of the federal funding and a lot of the funding is for opiates, right? So it's hard when, you know, you apply for a grant or the local CSBs, they have to strictly focus on, you know, users of opiates, which is fine and lovely and beautiful and they're saving lives, but there's so much more meth is huge right. now, you know, because it's getting harder, I guess, at the borders. I don't know for the opiates and the fentanyl to get in. So it's a lot. So, I mean, the best, one of the second best, the authenticity is number one, but the second is like, we try to help every human that could, no matter what their drug they're addicted to. And I use drug because alcohol is a drug to me. So that's everything um, wrapped up yeah. in a nice, pretty pink bow. But you know, but there's so, like I said, there's so much more than just, and if you, when you read my book, you know, there's so much trauma that I just kind of pushed and pushed and pushed down for a long time. Um, but also like healing yourself from the inside and that's co-occurring. So we get a lot of humans that have co-occurring here, but again, having those awesome partnerships and relationships in the community is what I wish for everyone around the world to not just focus on, you're correct, just alcohol or just opiates or just cocaine and crack or just mental health. Cause all these organizations are doing beautiful things, but I think it's all, you. there's so much more. Like you said, the little spokes on the wheel, there's so much more to, for me. And again, my mm-hmm. story and my addiction, there was, there's so much more. I've been, you know, to marriage therapy and like, there's so much that I just didn't resolve uh, from childhood that I thought I did through like 12 step. And I didn't, I didn't completely. So I needed to do some things a couple years ago, you know, and I had 12 years in recovery at that time because it's always something, you know, cause it's a mental illness. The disease of addiction is identified as a mental illness. So, but I think, you know, that our world can get a lot better if there are multiple services, you know, in each organization. And I don't, I mean, there's a lot of organizations that do beautiful things here, but I don't know of one, um, like ours, where we have jail programs, we have same day access, you know, we have so many different right. things, but, but McShin again has been around 17 years. So we've grown and added all these things. Cause it's kind of like trial and error too, you know, and, and sometimes we're not capable. I'll be frank with you, capable of taking major mental illness, um, coupled with, you know, the mental illness of addiction, my staff and myself, we're just not equipped sometimes. So that's right. when, you know, our local partners need to, and that's, sometimes that's difficult with the hospitals and stuff. Cause they'll just, some just take them for like two days and then they street them, you know? So it's a whole system of care that we're still kind of missing, you know, with this epidemic or addiction as a whole. 
I want to pick your brain on something. Now, early, I've been doing the podcast for a year, mm-hmm. actually a year and a couple months. And early on, I was very, like I said, when I got thrust into this uh, area with substance abuse and, and addiction, I spent a lot of time on disease or choice. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would have guests on, I would, I would ask them that question, you know, is, is addiction a disease or is addiction a choice? And then I finally realized, you know, I think rephrasing this a little bit, reframing it in, in it's obviously it's nature and nurture. It's not nature or nurture, but let me ask you that question that I've asked people in the past. You know, if you had to pick which one you think is more of a contributing factor to someone's addiction, uh, the disease model where either they're born this way or they activated a gene that, you know, once they had their first beer, you know, now, now that gene was activated and they became an addict. Or do you think that people have more of a choice of an ability to say, I'm simply going to not do this. Uh, and it, obviously it, it think the disease element is, uh, I guess makes it easier to be less, uh, it basically gives people an out, you know, Hey, I don't have a choice. I'm, I have this thing inside of me that, that I just, I have no choice and you almost feel sorry for them. Whereas if, if you said you are empowered, you, you can make these choices and someone isn't choosing to do it, then you almost don't feel sorry for them. It's like, well, you know, you can quit if you want to. Well, so where do you lie on that? I'm, I'm just curious on, on your position or maybe you guys don't take a position. So, I mean, we kind of do, I guess, you know, I believe, uh, addiction is a disease. You know, I started doing addictive, had addictive behaviors when I was younger before 12. So I believe for me, I've always had it in some form or fashion before I even put drugs in me. And that's my story to tell, but I truly believe the disease of addiction, whether you start smoking weed or drinking in your backyard, you know, even with your parents, sometimes they give you the, you know, the wine or whatever for New Year's. Like, I believe people have addictive personalities and addictive brain cells in their brains that something goes off for them. I know for me, for opiates specific, once I was 17, the, I remember the first day I used it. I remember how it made me feel. But from 17 to age 26, that's all I was focused on for nine years. And it wasn't about being cool anymore. It wasn't about fitting in. It was about staying well and not being dope sick. You know, and, and really there was so much shame, trauma, guilt, pain that I just kept using and using and using. I did not have a choice back then. I did not have a choice. I was physically and mentally addicted to it upon hundreds and thousands of people that have been through here throughout the, all the years moving forward past now, almost 15 years in recovery. I have a different perspective that some may or may not like, or might disagree with, but me as a woman, as a wife, as a mom, as a CEO, business owner, now an author, like I feel like I have a choice to go use again. I used to hear people in 12-step meetings like I, um, uh, using isn't an option. You know, a lot of people use that. And I've never, I've, I've actually, I probably have said it earlier in recovery, but I don't use that because using is an option for me. You know, I could use again, but I don't know if I'd have another recovery left in me because I couldn't just go out and just drink or smoke weed. I would go, if I did that and maybe last a day, I love 
heroin and opiates. So I mm-hmm. would probably be the one getting the fentanyl and die immediately. So now I do have a choice. Like I feel I'm educated enough about recovery. I have lived experiences of multitude of things since I've been in recovery. So if I go use or take the actions to go use, drink, do anything, I know I can call my mentors and call women in my life or talk to my husband or talk to John, the co-founder, which is my boss of McShin. Like I have a ton of options instead of just getting in my car and going to use. Even though I have the addictive Mm -hmm. personality and the addictive brain, I don't think about using ever. I more think of like, you know, just running away until I run out of gas, but on a tropical island somewhere. But, you know, I, in the beginning, no. Do I think I have a disease of addiction? 1000%. But do I think I have somewhat of a choice at this point? Yes, I I truly do. Is it possible that addiction itself is is a disease, yet substance abuse is a choice? No, because I don't believe that because and are they different? Are they different? Because I feel like I feel like we're all addicted. I'm addicted to telling the truth. I'm addicted to working out. I'm addicted to watching college football on Saturday. Yeah. Um, But I I choose to abuse it. I could watch, you know, nine hours of college football. I could eat every bite of pizza, Um, but I don't. So even though I'm addicted to things. I don't think the addiction itself is the problem. This is just my philosophy. I think it's the when you start abusing, there are plenty of people that have alcohol and it never does any damage to anything around them. Right. And they could be addicted to alcohol and be perfectly fine, except obviously you get behind the wheel and things like that. But so I think, I think one of the stigmas I'm trying to research on, not preach about, because I'm, I'm no expert. I'm just a dad from Iowa that has a do- couple dogs in the hunt that I've lost humans that mean a lot to me. I think there's a possibility that we may be looking at this a little bit, a little bit differently in the future in that we just admit that everyone has a mental illness. Everybody has addiction and there's not just people that have addictions and those, those who don't. And we all have addictions where that's what makes us human, but it's the difference between the people that abuse the addictions that that's what causes the problems, not the addiction themselves. Am I wrong on that thinking? Or do you think there's some hope in the way I'm looking at that for me. It's totally hope. I mean, for sure. I mean, that philosophy, if we dug into that, you know, nationally, I think that would be huge and hopefully prevent a lot of deaths, to be honest with you. But on the other, sp- you know, I, you know, I, I, part of my recovery, I got addicted to uh, exercising as well, as far as mm. I have addictive brains, but it was, it it was because I didn't want my husband to look at another woman. It wasn't about mm-hmm. I like doing it and everything. It was more of that. I mean, I've worked through all the that. Self-confidence right. thing. I still right. exercise. I got my Peloton bike. I love it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's my biggest part of my recovery and my pathway, to be honest yeah. with you nowadays. Yeah. Um, but I do it because I love it, not to worry about what he's looking at. You know what I mean? It's And that's yeah. a lot yeah. of yeah. work and stuff. But so we can all be addicted. You know, you probably will get a lot of pushback from that because some people are addicted to porn and 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 all kinds of other yep. stuff they can be addicted to but they a don't want to admit it but also well i only you know watch porn twice a day and i'm not you know that's what men do or whatever you'll get so mm-hmm. much right with this philosophy right. i'm just you know i'm sure you've already have but i truly believe you know 
for us that are chemically or, you know, substance use disorders, that it is a little different as far as our lives go, our lives go to crap most of the time. It is, I mean, I know people that come in and they say, well, I'm a functioning alcoholic or whatever they identify as, um, or I haven't been to jail yet or something like that. I am right. (laughs) But I committed so many felonies that again, I had a guardian angel that put me in a place that I'm help the humans that I help. So, you know, I think everyone has their own kind of pathway, but I truly believe, you know, addiction is addiction, no matter what it is. And the biggest part of like needing to get help with your addiction is if some negative things, or you're so focused on, like for me, I was focused on how it was a Monday. How could I fit in that run on a Saturday between dropping my daughter here? You know, mm-hmm. it was more like, so I was mm-hmm. like, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is, yeah. I had to talk to my, at that time, 12 step sponsor. Cause that was years ago. I've, I've again, worked through all that, but you know, and I had to talk to her, like this wasn't drugs anymore. This was me working out constantly or running or whatever. So you just shifted one addiction and totally. replaced it with another. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I can always be that way. I don't know. As I'm getting older, to be honest, I've just gotten, I'm not the wisest, you know, owl out there, but I've gotten just so much more um, simpler and like not really um, worrying about so many things that I was worried about. And a lot of it revolved around like childhood stuff and um, low self-esteem still and like expectations on what a woman is supposed to be and a CEO yeah. and all of that. And I have all these years in recovery. So why is she having a meltdown in a 12 step meeting? Like she's mm-hmm. not supposed to do that. So I had to knock, I guess the glass ceilings, you know, away from a lot of that and be, really be my vulnerability piece, you know, to get out there and then writing this book. I mean, it's, it's pretty vulnerable. <laughs> so well, one thing I learned in writing my book as well, uh, and I'd certainly love to swap books with you. Okay. Um, I, I did mine a couple of years ago. It's called This One's For You, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meaning. Okay. Is that, uh, well, the vulnerability thing is huge. We could spend a whole hour just talking about that. But it's it's kind of the way that the ancient Stoics talked about reframing. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're always free to tell yourself a new story about your past. You're not obligated to even if the past is accurate, you're not obligated to go back there and live in that time frame. You're you're free to just rewrite a new story. And I've kind of found little ways to trick my brain. So, you know, I don't even call myself sober because that implies that I'm in a struggle. The word sobriety is like me against something. Well, I just choose not to drink today. And so that's my definition of sobriety. And then, you know, in my book, I write about this where my son's descent into madness and and ultimately I think had a lot to do with him dying was his addiction to Adderall Mm -hmm. at 16 that a doctor gave him because he was hyperactive and the label on his forehead was attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think it's criminal that to this, to this day we still use disorder to, to talk about attention deficit. I am, I'm attention deficit. It's a superpower. I talk about this every show, everything I write about. A lot of what I do is because I am hyper-focused. Does it get me in trouble? Yeah, absolutely. My report cards in fifth grade, my parents would read them. You know, little Jeff, he can't sit still. He's looking out the window, you know? It's like, but my dad always said, you know, Jeff, I'd rather have that in you than have you the other way around. Mm -hmm. You know, 
I'd rather have a child that we had to curtail to slow down than to have one we had to try to motivate. Mm -hmm. And so I never looked at my attention deficit as anything bad. I think the problem today is when a child has something, we put a label on it like attention deficit, tell them it's a disorder, and then the rest of their life, they think that it is a disorder. And I don't think that we are obligated to believe what doctors tell us either. I think you have a right to say, you know what? You can tell my son that he is he has attention deficit, but I'm certainly not going to tell him it's a disorder. I think if more parents took that approach, I'm not telling you that we don't have to like my dad's a doctor, so I'm not criticizing the medical profession. Yeah. But, you know, here's here's a doctor telling his own son, we're not going to give you Ritalin. Mm -hmm. We're going to tell you this is a superpower, Jeff. And, you know, again, so it can be done. It can be done. And I think as a society, we really need to look at how we impose these limitations on people by using labels and stigmas mm -hmm. and start when, when people ask me, what does changing the narrative mean, Jeff, when you're going on tour in a few months, you talk about changing the narrative. Well, one changing the narrative is changing the labels and stigmas that we're putting on people for these things that really make us human. You know, I, I believe we all have mental illnesses. I don't think mental illness is unique to you and not to me. Mm -hmm. We all do. And, but it's like a spectrum. You know, it's like, it's like the autism spectrum. It's like there's high level mental illnesses, like you know, being psychopathic or being, um, schizophrenia, things like that. And then there's the lower ones, the lower level tension deficit that, that seem to don't get you in trouble, except maybe you do things a little bit quicker. But I think it, I think every human being on the planet that's ever existed has some attribute of a, a mental illness. You know, really what is a mental illness? You know, what is it? It's just maybe something that doesn't make you normal to the group of people you're with. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just lecturing here, but it's like, I'm always wondering why we even call things like mental illness or um, all these words we use. And it almost sounds like if you say that, then that's implying that some people don't have mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it all comes down to the medical professionals. You know, they come up with all different new names right. and that's where I'm heading with this, I guess. Right. Yeah. So it's really not, I mean, we, I use recovery, a woman in recovery. I don't ever use, I'm an addict. I don't ever say that anymore. Like it's all Good. about like how you um, speak, you know, everyone asks me all the time, why do you call our participant humans? Like the humans that we serve. I, I heard you say that like four times. Right. And <laughs> I just, I just love that. I don't know. I've just evolved, like it too. Yeah. I've just evolved a lot, not just professionally, but personally. And you know, there's, right. there's a lot of things changing. It's 2022. There's so many things changing. There's so many movements going on. There's so many things that right. need to change. And a human is a human to me, no matter what color, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what sex, no matter if even if they're questioning that that's just my, you know, opinion. And some people frown upon that too, but I don't care because this is the one life that I have. And this is the one life that I get to treat other humans, you know, mm -hmm. equally, you know? So I don't know. I think it's all about how we talk and how we, and I'm not perfect. I mean, I mess up and I say the wrong thing and you know, I'm yeah. human, <laughs> but I think right, right. if all of us took a little extra time to practice or a little extra time to be like empathetic to 
to humans. I just think this world would, would definitely get better. But unfortunately, there's so much involved as far as politics, money, you know, yeah, social, yeah. social, everything is social, you know, and it's, it's just a tough world. I mean, look at everything going on in our world right now. I mean, like these people mm-hmm. can't even feed their children right now. And you, right. And so it's like, what the hell? So I'm just trying to be, do the best that I can with raising my kids and being, you know, an example to other women like me. And I don't know, I think all of us just need to do a little bit better, um, to be honest with you. And that starts with us and it starts in our homes. Amen to that. Uh, certainly, um, kids will follow our lead Mm -hmm. basically. Uh, Last five minutes. Let's turn the spotlight on your okay. book. Um, okay. What's the name of your book? And tell me a little bit about the why you wrote the book. What your objection or what your objective was? What your what your main focus or market is? Who you're trying to speak to? And then how can people get your book as well? Sure. So it's called Scattered Pink: A Diary of a Woman in Recovery. It is all on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. I like book bookshop.org. Um, they donate to local bookstores. So if you can do that. You just, you know, bookshop.org. I love that one. Um, so the book, so I thought about it for like a year. I did my outline. I don't know. I just, again, like this three years ago, kind of Mark, a lot of things changed in my life. That's in my book, but, um, I just started following, like taking a lot of negativity off of social media and really started focusing on following awesome, positive women and mentors. And I just started, you know, reading a ton of books. Um, and I never, I mean, I've read throughout the years of recovery. I never read before when I was using, I was not reading a book because I, right now, um, but you know, and then I just kind of, I don't know. I was like, you know, I kind of want to share some things that we go through as humans, not just focus. I mean, it's a lot about McShannon recovery and addiction because that's a lot. It was 14 years of my life. So, but I really wanted to focus also on like the body image challenges, being a mom, being a woman, you know, being a female CEO and the challenges that came and still kind of um, stir up a little sometimes, but how humans can overcome so many obstacles and live the happiest life that they can while they're on this planet. Like, you know, again, the world, you never know what can happen. I can walk out and God forbid something happened to me. So it's just, it's a really super quick read. It's about my life. It's got some tips on like things that I've done, um, that, that weren't successful, but also things that have been super successful in my life. And, you know, just, it's not a very, you know, it's just a tell all, you know, for the most part, mm-hmm. a lot of the younger stuff and, and addiction piece, it's, it's a lot of what I could remember, to be honest, because I yeah. have so <laughs> many drugs, geez. And I think about that too, but, um, I don't remember a lot and it's just kind of bits and right. pieces and, you know, and I didn't get put every single bit of my life in there, but sure. It, absolutely. I just wanted it. I like, um, you know, super quick, you know, interesting humans to read about. So I just kind of right. wanted it to be easy. It's paperback, so we can put it in the jails, hopefully get that approved. Um, and then the ebook is on Amazon as well. Um, so yeah, it was just, 
And my husband, I talked about it for like two years and there's all that self-doubt. It's going to suck. No one's going to buy it. Oh yeah. All that. So you yeah, know. I that too. And it was like, yeah. my uh, husband looked at me and this is no lie. He looked at me and said, just write the effing book. <laughs> so like, yeah. yeah. So like I finally, he was sick. Of, yeah. I mean, he loves me and supports me. And, and it's a lot about our relationship because we met in rehab 16 years ago and we used oh, together. Wow. Yeah. So, but now we're good. But, you know, I think it was more of, God putting all these people in my life. So my editor slash publisher, cause I'm doing hybrid self because I can't afford a big publisher. But, um, so I'm just kind of doing stuff like this and trying to get it out there. Just yeah. it helps. Yep. I mean, it's geared towards women, obviously, because I am yep. one and I'm a mom, but a men can read it too. I mean, it's more of just like, you know, John, our co-founder, which you probably should get him on here one day, but, um, he called me. I wanted him to read it. My daughter, which is 20 and my husband, I wanted all of them to read it before, you know, I, I went right. for it. Right. Cause it's got some stuff about all three of them, but you know, he looked right. called me. I was like, this needs to be a movie. You know, you don't see many movies where there is like a happy ending as far as it right. and someone, you know, ends up in jail or passes away or, you know, whatever, you know, and it's not a lot of people that go through an organization and then become the CEO, and especially a female CEO, to be frank. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's it. Scattered Pink. It's, you know, super quick, fun. It's funny, too. You know, it's got some funny stuff. I, I like you have to make light I of these serious, the yeah. seriousness or it'll drive yeah. you crazy. Well, listen, I, I really want to thank you for being on the thank show. You. Um, I want to I want to say this and I speak on behalf of everyone watching this is that I think you're a great human. <laughs> I appreciate uh, and I'm looking forward to meeting you when we come out on the okay. tour. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the McShin Foundation um, would want to be our state partner for Virginia. I know we've got good connections there and uh, together we can make a difference and start to move the needle on some of these uh, issues with mental health and, um, you know, certainly not going to do it alone. So. With that, thank you very much for your time. And um, is there any quick way for people to reach you if they want to reach out to you personally? Sure. Just honesty at mcshen.org or honestylillar at gmail.com. Super easy. Okay. Well, keep living undeterred and thank you very much for your time. Thank you.